Amen. Thank you, choir. The Lord has indeed done great things. And we are here this morning to acknowledge those great things and to give Him praise and return for all that He's done for us. I'm so glad again to be back here in Nashville. We missed you guys last week as we were worshiping in, at, uh, in Guatemala. Um, we're going to start a new series today as we continue to read through the Bible in 2017. And as I was looking last week at the, the text for this month in the, the Old Testament, we, we did John in, in May, and, and I want to kind of uh, hit uh, the Old Testament passages now in June. The choir's not there. I just turned around to talk to them. They're not there anymore. That's great. You told me they weren't going to be there. I'm sorry. I'm still half in Guatemala right now, apparently. But as I was looking through these, these texts, we're going to be in Second Chronicles, and we're going to be in Ezra, and we're going to be in Nehemiah, and then we're going to finish... Uh, the month in Job, so I was kind of reading through them, and I was looking for a theme, you know, what, what, what's emerging in all these different texts, and something I kept seeing over and over again was the greatness of our God. There's all these, these scenes in Second Chronicles and in Ezra and in Nehemiah where God's people gather together to, to extol His praise, to praise the Lord, just like we just sang, because of the great things that God has done because of his greatness, because of his majesty, because of his glory, because of his dominion and sovereign care over the universe, his people gather to show him uh, that they are grateful, that they love him, they respond to his greatness in worship and in praise. So we're going to be looking at these scenes of, of worship, these scenes where God's greatness is obviously on display. If you're not reading with us uh, in 2017, it's not too late to start. Start today. Pick up a bookmark out at the Welcome Centers in the North Lobby or the South Lobby, or pick up the whole sheet that has the entire schedule on it for the year, or get the app on your phone, the ESV app or the, the Bible app, and, and start reading along with us. And uh, I think it'll, it'll be the best 20 minutes of your day, potentially. So it was incredible in Guatemala. Uh, in the mornings, we, we, we had breakfast at 6 a.m. And uh, I, you know, would, would kind of get in there early, about 5.30 or so. I thought I was early. But uh, Bobby and Dewey Dunn were well into their Bible study already by 5.30 by the time I got into there. And to see our team members scattered around the mission house reading their Bibles as we are reading through this uh, scripture passages for the year. One morning I was in the library area of the Mission House studying and Ed Fulcher came bursting into the, the library and said, have you read today's passage yet? I said, no, not yet, not yet, Ed. What's, I'm kind of, you know, ahead right now, but what, what are you referring to? He said, oh, there's this part that reminds me of this, this song. And he started singing in the library at, at 5.45 in the morning and the, the Bible had just so inspired him in that moment. And then one afternoon, I was looking around for Jackson and Hums. I didn't know where they had snuck off to. didn't know what they were up to. Some of our teenage boys, you know, uh, unaccompanied, you know, the no, no parental people there. And I'm like, where did those guys get to? And so I went and looked in their room, and I caught them. They were, they were both reading their Bibles, um, just the two of them, uh, you know, alone with their Bibles open. Uh, that was incredible. I took a picture. I didn't show you guys. Uh, did you see me? I was sneaking. You saw me? Oh, man, not that sneaky. So Trey, other youth workers, you're to be commended for the good work y'all are doing with uh, these teenagers who are studying the word with us. So for this 
series in June, we're going to focus on this idea of the greatness of God, which at first seems like a basic idea, right? But really, this idea of the greatness of God has the power to fundamentally change our lives. What I mean is that if we grasp the, the height and the breadth of God's greatness, if we begin to, to value God's greatness over everything else, then it orients our lives around God as primary, right? It helps us to live according to God's ways and into God's purposes for our flourishing and for our thriving when we, when we extol the greatness of God above all else. So what we're going to do is uh, next week we're going to talk about Josiah, the king of, of Israel who stumbled upon the word of the Lord in 2 Chronicles 34, and, and he, he finds the, the book of the law, and it, it so changes his life that he starts all these reforms in Israel, and it leads to the flourishing of the people of God. Then the, the third week, we're going to look at Ezra, and we'll see how God's great faithfulness leads his people out of exile and back to Jerusalem and, and installs them there again as the people of God. And then finally, we're going to end uh, the last week in June in, in Nehemiah, where we talk about the, the greatness of God's works, how God works on our behalf when he hears the cries of his children call to him, and in his mercy, he works on our behalf. But today we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 7, in what, what really is one of the most amazing worship services ever to take place on the planet, okay? It's one of the most amazing worship times in all of Scripture as well. And it was a life-changing event for everyone who was present at this worship service, so much so that it was kind of a, a paradigm-shifting moment for God's people when they experienced firsthand the greatness of our God. They, they understood that the greatness of our God makes everything else in this universe pale in comparison. What's the line at the end of the old hymn, um, in the light of his glory and grace, things will grow strangely dim, right? In the light of his glory and grace, the things of earth will grow strangely dim. I think that's true when we see the greatness of God. So before we get into this, let's, let's set up First and Second Chronicles a little bit, okay? These are books of history that were written pretty late in Old Testament history, okay? They were written about 400 B.C., or some scholars think even later than 400 B.C. That's, that's some of the latest books that we have in the, the Old Testament here. So they were, they were written by priests and scribes who, who worked in the newly rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, uh, who served the Lord there after the exiles returned to Jerusalem. So let's, let's remember our history, okay? History of Israel 101. I know it's summer, but uh, just put on your school hats for just a minute with me, okay, as, as we review our history, okay? Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is, is like prehistory, right? Covers thousands of years or whatever, millions of years. And then Genesis 12, God calls out Abraham, it's about 2000 BC, most scholars think. He sets up a family, the patriarchs, right? Abraham has Isaac, Isaac has Jacob, Jacob has the, the 12 sons who become the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Then a few generations later, God's people have, have multiplied and flourished in Canaan, but, but they, they have followed other pagan gods, and so God judges them by sending them into slavery in Egypt. That's about 1300 BC. They go into slavery in Egypt. And then you know that God sends Moses and Aaron to miraculously 
deliver his people out of Egypt uh, through the Exodus. So they end up uh, going into the, wandering in the wilderness, you know, and then they, they receive the, the law at Mount Sinai. And finally, uh, as they stand on the plains of Moab in Deuteronomy, Joshua leads them over the Jordan River and into Canaan about 1200 BC for the first time. And then you have the judges that rule in Canaan, right? They're presiding over God's people until finally the people cry out to God, we, we want a king. And God says, okay, you can have a king. And he gives them Saul. That's about 1050 BC. He gives them Saul. And Saul rules for about 40 years. And then uh, the man after God's own heart, King David, it, he comes on the scene in 1010 BC. And he rules for another 40 years. And then his son Solomon takes up the, the kingship uh, 40 years later. And, and he starts out great. Solomon asks God for wisdom, and he's a wise king, and he gets, uh, you know, going fantastic. But then he starts going after pagan gods. He starts going after pagan women. He starts marrying thousands of women and has 3,000 concubines. He, he becomes an arms dealer. He starts trading war horses and chariots with Egypt and Assyria. And God, again, judges Israel, and the whole kingdom falls apart. It splits into Israel in the north, or Samaria, right? And Judah in the south, where Jerusalem was, and the temple. So ten tribes are up in the north, and, and the tribes of Judah and Benjamin are in the south, where Jerusalem is. And really, the kingdoms kind of prospered. We read in First and Second Kings how all the kings of Israel in the north were bad. All of them were bad. And, and about half the kings in Judah were bad. But the Lord allowed them to kind of flourish during this time, but they refused to turn back to God. He sent the prophets, and they wouldn't listen to him. They killed the prophets, a lot of them. And then finally, God wiped out Israel in 722 BC. He sent in the mighty Assyrians who just completely took over the northern kingdom, wiped it out forever. And then the, the southern kingdom of Judah said, well, we're still going great. God must really love us until 586 BC when the Babylonians came in and completely took over Judah and brought all the Judeans into Babylon as slaves once again, just like they were a thousand years before in Egypt. So at this point, uh, God's completely judged the kingdom of Israel. That's when in 539 BC, the Persian Empire rises to power and they come in and take over the Babylonians. King Cyrus is a, a pretty good dude. He's the Persian king. And unlike the Babylonians, he says, hey, you Jewish people, you can go back to Israel. I'm going to let you go back. And he sends back the exiles back to Jerusalem. That's when you get Ezra and Nehemiah, right, who lead the exiles into God's ways back in the new, new, the new Jerusalem where they, they build uh, back the city. Everybody got it? We on the same page now? Okay? Good. All right. So First and Second Chronicles covers a lot of this history. It's a lot of the same ground that First and Second Kings cover, but because it was written so late, it's more of a didactic book. It's written more for our instruction. It's basically saying, here's what happened in First and Second Kings. Don't do that. <laughs> Don't make the same mistakes that the, the Israelites made during that time of history. Learn from their ways. Return to the Lord. Know that he's faithful. Understand his greatness and his glory and seek those first. It was a book of instruction for God's people during that time. And it doesn't mention a lot of the awful things that First and Second Kings does. There's no cannibalism in, in Chronicles like there is in, in First and Second Kings. But instead, Chronicles offers hope. 
that our God is a merciful God who hears the cries of his people and who's merciful and wants us to return to him with all of our hearts and will receive us with open arms. Our God is, is slow to anger and he is great and merciful. So the, the major themes of Chronicles are centered around David's dynasty, right? The lineage, the house that God promised to build for him. This was the line that would eventually lead to the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the one from whom the scepter would not depart, whose rule would last forever. But this dynasty must be upheld by the faithful and purposeful worship of God. Where did that happen? Where was worship centered in Jerusalem? The temple, right? The temple of God in Jerusalem. Remember way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, it's also in 1 Chronicles 17, where King David, after squashing the Philistines and expanding and securing the borders of Jerusalem, said, hey, it's not right that I'm in a palace here and God lives in a tent. I'm going to build God a house, a big, beautiful temple. And God says, no, 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 I don't need a house. I'm everywhere. I'm all-powerful and, and totally sovereign. In fact, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to build you a, a lineage that will last forever because it will lead to the Messiah eventually. So David says, okay, if I'm not going to build the temple, I'm, I'm going to get the supplies and kind of prepare the way for whoever follows me. So he dies at the end of 1 Chronicles, and then his son Solomon takes over. And the first chapter of 2 Chronicles is about how Solomon asked for wisdom. And, but then the next five chapters of 2 Chronicles are all about how Solomon builds this temple, how he, how he plans so carefully, how he spares no expense to build this beautiful temple on Mount Moriah right there in the highest point in Jerusalem. It's a place where people can worship their great God. It's appropriate for worship. And the temple that he built was, was huge. We have some slides here, Mark. Do we have, uh, there we go. Here's the, the temple. That's, that's the actual temple in the middle there. And it was surrounded by all these courts. The, the inner court there was the, the court of the Jews. And then the outer court is the court of the Gentiles. And there was a, a court of women as well where, where only women could go and a court where men could go just past that. And then the, the actual temple is the tall part there. That's, that part right there was, was 30 feet wide and 90 feet long. And it was covered in jewels. Go to the next one, Mark. Let's look at these. This is the, the inner part of the, 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 the actual temple there. It had a huge bronze basin with 12 uh, bronze oxen underneath it. And that was where the priests would wash because they had to sprinkle blood all over themselves. So they would wash in this basin. And they built this huge bronze altar right there. It was 15 feet high and it was 30 feet wide and 30 feet long. That's where they would offer the, the burnt offerings. Go to the next one, Mark. This shows the inside of the temple. You can't really see it that well, but there's the basin and the altar. Then inside it, there were 10 golden lampstands. You know the menorah that Jewish people use today? There were 10 of those, five on the north side, five on the south side. And in the Holy of Holies in the back, the special chamber where only the, the priests could go one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was placed between two massive golden cherubim angels that guarded over the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant. It was an amazing facility. Uh, there's been archaeological digs that have discovered some of this. You know, the Western Wall still remains now in Jerusalem to this day. The Wailing Wall, you can go visit it today. So this incredible 
building that took Solomon seven years with thousands of laborers and craftsmen and artisans from all over the world. He contracted the best artisans from all over the world to complete this massive project. So finally, when it's done, when it's ready to, to, to be dedicated in, in 960 BC or so, he gathers all the people of Israel in Jerusalem. They gather around that, that courtyard, around the temple, and he's going to have an epic dedication service. So he orders the Ark of the Covenant to be brought up from the old city of David, the old part of, of Jerusalem, and to be brought into the Holy of Holies. And, and something amazing happens when the priests bring it in. Look at 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 7 through 14. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. The cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark so that the cherubim made a covering above the ark and its poles. And the poles were so long that the ends of the poles were seen from the holy place before the inner sanctuary, but they could not be seen from outside, and they are there to this day. There was nothing in the ark except the two tablets that Moses put there at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the people of Israel when they came out of Egypt. And when the priest came out of the holy place, for all the priests who were present had consecrated themselves without regard to their divisions. And all the Levitical singers, Asaph, Heman, and Juduthan, their sons and kinsmen, arrayed in fine linen with cymbals, harps, and lyres, stood east of the altar with 120 priests who were trumpeters. It was the duty of the trumpeters and the singers to make themselves heard in unison and praise and thanksgiving to the Lord. And when the song was raised with trumpets and cymbals and other musical instruments and praise to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. The house, the house of the Lord was filled with a cloud. Looks like a cloud's descending right now. <laughs> so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of God. Whoa. What is this cloud about? What's going on here? We'll get to that in just a minute, but let's keep reading here for a minute. In chapter 6, Solomon blesses the people of Israel who've assembled, and then he climbs up onto that huge bronze altar that you saw, 15 feet above the ground, 30 foot by 30 foot, and he kneels on the bronze altar like he's offering himself as a living sacrifice before God, saying, here I am, Lord, take all of me. Reminds me of Romans 12, where Paul says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, right? And he prays this beautiful prayer of dedication. It's like 40 verses long. It's an amazing prayer where he asks God to do all these things. He asks God to confirm his promises to David, to fulfill his covenant promises to his people, Israel. He also prays that God will hear the prayers that are going to be offered in this place, that he'll be attentive to the temple worship. Then he he prays one of the coolest things that he prays for foreigners who come to worship there. He says, God, listen to the foreigners who come to worship here so that all nations may know that you are God. What a missional impulse there that Solomon had for the world, his desire to see all the nations come to know God. And then when he finishes praying this prayer of dedication, something amazing happens again. Look at chapter 7, verse 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices 
and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord saying, for he is good, for his steadfast love, his hesed love, his determined, undying, dogged and, and not letting go love endures forever. And then the king and all the people offered sacrifices before the Lord. King Solomon offered as a sacrifice 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. So the king and all the people dedicated the house of the Lord. So we see here for a second time that the glory of the Lord shows up in a very real, a very tangible, physical kind of way. The first time in chapter 5, it says the priests couldn't, couldn't stand because the, the glory of the Lord was so thick they couldn't get off their knees. But now it says that they couldn't even go inside the temple because the glory of the Lord filled the temple completely. They couldn't enter into it because it was filled with the greatness of God. The, the presence of the Lord was so thick around them. And this time, fire falls from heaven and the sacrifices are immediately consumed the glory of the Lord is revealed like this several times in Scripture, actually. When Moses built the tabernacle, Exodus chapter 40 and Leviticus 9, we see that fire fell and, and that the glory of God appeared to the people of Israel in the form of a, a shining cloud settling thickly over the tent of meeting, the tabernacle that Moses built. The prophet Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord as a cloud in the temple, but then he saw the glory of the Lord depart. The cloud went out from the temple. That's happened in a few churches that I know of. <laughs> when Jesus was transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration in front of Peter and James and John, they, they saw a bright cloud that descended and enveloped them. And then a voice that came from the cloud that said, this is my blessed son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. What is that all about, this, this shining glory cloud? Well, first off, let's, let's talk about what, what glory is. The Hebrew word that's used here for glory is kavod. And kavod really literally means weight or like heaviness. The idea here is that God's greatness, God's glory, God's majesty is, is so magnificent that it, that it bears on us, that it settles on us with, with weight, with gravity that, that, that envelops us, that pushes down on us, that we feel. Have you ever been overcome by the presence of the Lord like that? We're spiritual beings, right? Our spirits commune with the Holy God. When that happens, it's like God's presence is so thick, so weighty, so tangible that you can't help but feel it. If you've never had an experience like that, I pray that you would. Pray that you would open your heart to the ways of God, that you experience his glory in a way that has weight to it, that has significant presence. You know, later in, the, in Jewish tradition, they began to call this kind of glory that, that weighs on us. The, the Jewish scholars refer to this as Shekinah glory. Some of you heard that term before. It's not actually in the Bible, but it comes from the Hebrew word Shekinot, which is in the Bible. And, and Shekinot means to settle in or to dwell in. 
So it refers to the kind of glory that, that settles in on us, that dwells among us. So when the kavod of God, the glory of God, comes and, and settles among his people, we call that the Shekinah kavod, right? The glory of God that dwells physically with us here. So now here's the lesson for us. God's glory is the answer to Solomon's prayer of dedication, right? God reveals his glory after Solomon prays. He shows up in a physical, tangible way to acknowledge that, yes, this temple will indeed be the place where, where sins are atoned for, where, where sin is, is, is wiped away and made right so that we can become before the high and holy God in righteousness, so that we can be forgiven. It's the place where mercy is shown, where God's grace is revealed to us. The temple will be a place where people are made right with God. The temple will, will be the means by which we as sinful people will, will draw near to the throne. That's why his glory settles there because it's the place of salvation. It's the place where God's purposes and his will will be carried out. Where he will be glorified by rescuing us from our sin and death and suffering. Do you see where we're going with this as Christians now? Look at John chapter 2. It'll be on the screen. John 2, 18. You know, Jesus comes into the, the temple in Jerusalem. This was the second temple that, that Herod had built after the first one was destroyed by the Babylonians. And he finds the money changers who are cheating people out of their, their funds and they're giving them bad exchange rates and they're selling animals for sacrifices. And he makes a whip and he says, get out of here, this is my father's house. It's a house of prayer, not a place for you to make bad profit. And then the, the Jewish leader says, what's this all about? What, do you, what sign do you show? Verse 18, what sign do you show for us doing these things? Why are you driving people out of the temple? And Jesus answers them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this second temple that was under Herod, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture the Old Testament scriptures about the temple and the word that Jesus had spoken together that fulfills it. Jesus Christ is our temple. He's the place where, where sins are atoned for. He's the, the once for all sacrifice that alone can atone for the sins of the world. He is the spotless lamb whose once for all sacrifice is sufficient for you and me to draw near now to the throne of God in righteousness and experience the glory of the Lord. Do you long to see God's Shekinah glory manifested? If you, if you want to see that cloud, then look no further than the face of Jesus Christ and him crucified. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 says, For God who said, let light, Carol, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God's glory is fully revealed in the face of Jesus Christ on the cross. In John 1.14, a verse that I preached on a few weeks ago, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his 
glory. We've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. If you're wondering today, why, why doesn't God's grace show up like a cloud anymore these days? Well, we have something better. We have something far better. Charles Spurgeon has a famous sermon on, on, on John 1.14, and he says this, the tabernacle of old was not full of grace and truth. It was full of image and shadow and symbol and picture, but Christ is full of substance. Herein, O believer, do you rejoice with joy unspeakable, for you come unto Christ, the real tabernacle of God. Christ displays the glory of God because he is the temple of God. He is the place where God's glory fully dwells. So we'll close with this. There's a, a song that we used to sing when Morgan and I were in college at Tuesday night worship service, a song by Matt Redman that, that is based on this text from 2 Chronicles 7. It says, Lord, let your glory fall as on that ancient day. Songs of enduring love, and then your glory came. And as a sign to you that we would love the same, our hearts will sing that song, God, let your glory come. You are good, you are good, and your love endures. You are good, and you are good, and your love endures today. Voices in unison, giving you thanks and praise, joined by the instruments, and then your glory came. Your presence like a cloud upon that ancient day, the priests were overwhelmed because your glory came. A sacrifice was made, and then your fire came. They knelt upon the ground, and with one voice they praised. They sang, come, Lord. Lord, let your glory fall. Let your glory fall. Come, Lord Jesus, the real tabernacle of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have enabled us now in this time of salvation history to know the true tabernacle of the Lord, to know the, the place where your glory dwells, to see your Shekinah glory fully embodied in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God, we thank you that, that you've given us something far greater than the old tabernacle system, the old cultic practices of atonement, that now we have unending atonement through the grace you've shown us in our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we leave this place today, we would more fully look to you and your glory, that we would extol the greatness of our God above all other things, that the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. God, we thank you for the true tabernacle, the place where our sins are atoned for, the place where we are made whole, the place where our sins are traded for your righteousness. God, such grace is too wonderful for us to fathom, but I pray that you would help us to respond by living a life worthy of the gospel today. Help us to live for your glory. Help us to glorify you in all that we do, the way we eat our lunch now, the way we treat our family, the way that we, we interact with people at the grocery store, wherever we go, at, at work, at home, at play, at school, wherever we are, Lord, that you would help us to glorify you.
because your glory is far greater than anything else in this world. And we glorify you best by holding high the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his holy name that we pray now. Amen.